Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our visions of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on because school is now in session. When I wanted to start a podcast, I had no clue what I was doing. And I made so many mistakes along the way that I just wish I knew about earlier. I wish someone told me these things earlier. And so what I've done is I have prepared a completely free resource for everybody. It's called Podcast University. It solves for all of the unknown variables when it comes to starting your show or even taking your show to the next level. I talk about in a very, very concise manner. It's very quick to read what microphones to use, what headphones to use, what software you should use to record your remote interviews, and the microphones that you should use to record in-person interviews as well what software you should use to edit your show, what branding assets you need to take advantage of, where to host your podcast, like how do you get it on Apple and Spotify and everywhere else. I've got it all there for you on Podcast University. Again, completely free, and you can go to jordanparis.com slash P-U to get your show off the ground, take it to the next level, avoid all of the stress of figuring it out on your own. Podcasting has absolutely changed my life, and I know it will do the same for you. Now, one last thing before we get into it today, make sure that you are subscribed to the show, Growth Mindset University, wherever you are listening to this podcast. Everything we do here is to help you, to help you learn so that you can do all that you were created to do so that you can maximize your potential and who you are. As cliche as that sounds, we have interviews with New York Times bestselling authors and really just the most successful people in the world. Every single week, two times a week, we have those interviews. So we don't want you to miss it. Make sure you go do that. And now without further ado, please enjoy the show. My guest today is Mark Manson. Mark is the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, the mega bestseller that has been translated into over 50 languages and sold more than 8 million copies worldwide. Mark has also built one of the largest personal growth websites in the world, markmanson.net, a blog with more than 1 million readers and half a million subscribers, making him one of the largest and most successful independent publishers in the world. His writing is often described as self-help for people who hate self-help, a no BS brand of life advice and cultural commentary that has struck a chord with people around the globe. His writing has been published in Time Magazine, Forbes, Vice, and CNN, among many others. 
And The Subtle Art is one of the most popular books of the 21st century. And it's been one of the one of Amazon's top 10 most read books for the past 101 weeks, I believe, since the that list came out 101 weeks ago. His new book, Everything is Fucked, a book about hope, is available right now. Mark Manson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So we're going to talk about your new book, of course, but first let's talk about you. What were you doing before you were writing books? Oh man, I was uh I was running some websites trying to make a quick buck and uh traveling around the world partying too much. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> the long and short of it. <laughs> um I, I I did the have you read four hour work week? Yeah, it's actually right behind me on my favorite shelf right next to uh, or, or close to next to your book. That's my favorite shelf right there. Oh, no, nice, nice. Yeah, so it's, it's there. Yep, I've read it. Yeah, so I read that when it came out and, and I, I was like, oh, damn, I want to do that. So um, I spent a few years doing the online marketing thing and uh, living all over the world. And uh, after a few years, I realized like, you know what, I'm... I'm a mediocre marketer, but I seem to be good at this blogging thing. So let's stick with that. Did you, was that 2008 about? Um, that was 2011 um, when I, I, I made the conscious decision to switch to blogging full time around like 2010, 2011. Okay. So throughout your 20s, you were traveling around the world. Is that right? Yeah. Dude, that is something that I, you know, I'm 21 years old. And as soon as I'm no longer tied to a location with, with school, unfortunately, I, you know, it's been my plan for quite some time because that book impacted me in a similar way to set off on a similar adventure. And I mean, you've, well, you visited 60 countries or lived in 60 countries, so to say, and you speak what, how many languages, two, three, two and a half, what? Uh, I'd say three, and then I know bits and pieces of a few more, so. Okay, we'll call it three and a half, so. (laughs) (laughs) So, what are some of the biggest things that you have learned from traveling the world, and do you recommend that for people? Absolutely, Uh, and I think your 20s is is the best time to do it for for a few reasons. One is that you're... um, you're still young enough that you're not tied down by a ton of obligations. So, you know, I, when I started, I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have a kid. I wasn't married. Um, my parents were healthy. And I think once you get into your thirties and forties, a lot of that stuff starts to kind of like, you know, I I don't want to say hold you down, but, um, basically you start accumulating commitments and obligations that make it more difficult to, um, to kind of just run around like that. The, the other thing that I think is it's so great about doing it in your 20s is that you're still pretty young and uh, impressionable um, and, and still like trying to figure out who you are. So being exposed to all these different cultures, like it just taught me so much about my own values and, you know, what kind of person I want to be. Because, you know, you, you go to you go to China and you, you see that they live completely differently than us, but they're still normal functioning people, you know? So you start to realize that a lot of the stuff that you grew up with isn't as universal as you thought it was. Um, and a lot of the stuff that you thought was, you know, maybe unique to 
your culture is actually universal. Right. Well, I like what you say about, you know, 20s is the time to do it because something that Seth Godin talks about in a very similar respect is that now is the time, you know, your college years, it is the time to make a thing, to do a thing and put it out into the market and see if people like it just to, to get, to, to try your hand at, at yeah. running a business uh, when you have less obligation and responsibilities, so to say. So, I, I mean, I totally agree with you there because, you know, once you, you know, once you get into your thirties and forties, I mean, you have, it's, it's hard to, it, I'd imagine it's much harder to travel the world with a family, you know, yeah. rather than doing it on your own. Were you doing it on your own, like the whole time or were you bringing friends or? I, I was, I did it on my own for about three and a half years. I mean, I would do trips with friends and things like that. Uh, but, and then I met my wife about, yeah, three or four years into it. And then she and I did it together for about two years. And yeah, it's a completely different, it's still awesome, but it's a very different experience. It's much more different than you would expect. Um, but in terms of the age thing too, I think it's just when you're younger, you have less to lose. Um, you know, if you take your typical 40 year old and if they like set out, you know, they quit their job and they try to build, build a business or something like that. Like they're putting a lot on the line. Um, whereas, you know, I, one of the things that, that inspired me to start was I was 23 and I had like an awful desk job I hated. And I asked myself, I'm like, well, if I, worst case scenario, I start, I try to start this online business thing and I fail. Um, and I come back a year later to the same shitty desk job that I hate. Uh, like what, what, what is the worst case scenario here? I mean, instead of a 23 year old with no job experience, I'm a 24 year old with no job experience. Like you basically lose nothing as long as you're willing to, uh, (laughs) just wait an extra year to like start your career. Um, so I was like, yeah, that's a no brainer. Cause I'm not going to have like that equation is not going to be the same in 10 years or 20 years. So, um, so yeah, it's take your shot early. So you had the shitty desk job for a year? Yeah, not even. I think I made it three months. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> I I had an entry level position at a investment bank. Um, I don't know why. I, I I like I played a lot of poker in college, and and I was good with like math and probably like doing math in my head. Um, so I was like, well, I guess I should take some classes on finance or something. And then, you know, of course you take those classes and then you get out. You're like, well, what, what kind of job can I get? And all my friends who from, from school were getting jobs at, at banks. So that, that seemed like the thing to do, but it was awful. <laughs> it was not, it was not for me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it's not for, it's not for me either. I mean, I learned very early on, granted I wasn't working in an office or anything, but from ages 16 to 18 and a half years old, I was working in a restaurant as I worked my way up from busser to server. And then I eventually flamed out as soon as I got promoted to server because it was like too much responsibility and I didn't know how to talk to people. I was like, oh, <laughs> uh, I'm like, I'm like Vanessa Van Edwards uh, says, you know, I'm a recovering awkward person. And uh, at that point I was full onset on- awkward person. So it was, it was a rough go of it, but I got out of there and I was like, never again you know yeah. never will i work for anyone ever again and and so i've been on this this journey for three years and yeah uh you know I've, i'm so thankful that 
you know, we're, we're, I'm so far along the path and, you know, I'm going to get out of college in a year and I don't really want that job. But anyway, moving on, we are, you know, you, you, when you were in college, you were the party guy, right? Mm -hmm. Would your friends find it surprising? Do they find it surprising that you are as successful as you are today? Um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Especially considering too, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I mean, you wrote it about in your book, so it's fair game, but you were kicked out of school at 13 when for dealing drugs, right? Yeah, although the joke with that is that I was entrepreneurial at a very young age. You know, I, I think um, some of my closer friends, I think, aren't aren't as surprised. Like they, the people who have known me for a really long time and know me really well, aren't as surprised. But I think um, definitely a lot of the people I I knew in college and in my twenties are a little bit shocked, and um, it's. I mean, part of that is on me that I just kind of existed in this very superficial and shallow, uh, I guess, plane of social existence for for a number of years. Um, but I think part of it too is that they just can't square, and they're like they saw all of, like the dumbass things that I said and did, and and they just can't square. Like like uh, there was a girl I dated in college who who messaged me recently, and she she's like every time I get on Facebook, there's somebody posting a quote of yours, and and she's like every single time I just like <laughs> remember this like awful and stupid thing you did when, when we were like 21 and she's like if only they knew like if only they knew <laughs> what was yeah. the what was the turning point like what what were where was the growth happening when did that happen well i i think like you i'm a recovering awkward socially awkward person oh um, good yeah so i think you know a lot of the partying was um it was it it was i was finally kind of coming into my own socially like i you know my high school experience was pretty pretty bad um and w- once i got to college and with the help of a little bit of alcohol um <laughs> you know i realized that i i i could talk to more people than i thought i could talk to i was liked by more people than i i thought i was like i was liked by more girls than i thought i was liked by um, and that, that was very intoxicating for a while. And so, and the, the, the whole school thing never really held, like I was always that kid that should have been making straight A's, but was making like B's and B pluses cause he didn't do his homework. Um, and it, it's, so most of my focus at that time, I didn't feel like school was really developing me as much intellectually as, as I wanted. And so I was, for me, I was, I think the, the social outlet was the exciting area of growth for me. Um, and so I think for a long time it was, you know, I joke about how much I partied, but I, I think it was a, a form of growth for me. It helped me develop my confidence, helped me develop my social skills, helped me develop my intimacy skills. Um, you know, got my first girlfriends and all that stuff. Uh, and I think it wasn't until my later twenties that it, it actually started to hinder me more than help me. I, it's one of those things that I think I held on for a little bit too long. Um, and you know, by the time I was like 28, it was like, all right, dude, <laughs> Cal- calm it down a little bit. <laughs> all right. 
So further, further along your journey, though, you, you know, you start to hit on it in terms of, you know, intimacy and dating and having girlfriends for the first time. You ended up writing a book in 2011 called Models, and it's all about attracting women through honesty. So you essentially, you wrote a book about dating. Why did you write a book about dating? You know, were, were you consider yourself successful in that area? Yeah, I mean, I became, uh, you know, if if you imagine, if you imagine somebody who is like hasn't e- eaten in three or four days, and then you like give them an all you can eat buffet, like that, like I I feel like m- my life up until I was about twenty or twenty one, uh, I was a little bit starved of. Um, affection and intimacy in my life. And, uh, and then as soon as I found that like women liked me, I, I went the other, I went to the other extreme. I overindulged and, um, I became a little bit, um, of a douchebag. And it's, it's, I think, so the, the, the story behind that book and, and I'm actually, I'm very proud of that book for a number of reasons, which I'll explain. But the, the story behind that book is that, so when I, when I started my online businesses in 2008, um, I started, it was kind of like, just throw everything at a wall and see what sticks. And I would just build WordPress sites and try to optimize for keywords and put some content up and try to like see if anybody spent any money. And the one one of the sites, you know, because I was a single 24 year old, I, and I was a little bit obsessed with my dating life. Like one of the the websites I put up was dating advice. Um, and I just wrote about my experiences there. That's actually my first blog ever was just me writing about my dating experiences in my early twenties. Um, and that was the one that actually stuck. That was the one, I mean, it, it made, after about a year or so, it, it made as much money as all the other sites combined. Um, and then by like 2010, I kind of, I just started shutting down all my other projects to focus on it. And the thing about that time, I don't know how aware you are of like the whole, like the, that book, the pickup artist and. Oh yeah. Um, it's actually, well, it's actually right here. The game. Yeah. And then I have the truth there as well. If I pull it out, the whole thing's going to collapse, but oh, that's <laughs> I'm like, um, yeah, but yeah, I, I, I know I'm very familiar. Yeah. Okay. So the Neil Strauss books and everything. So that was like peak pickup artist time. And for people who don't know what pickup artist stuff was, is that Neil Strauss wrote this book in 2005 called the game. And it basically talked about this kind of sub this like underground community of dudes online who essentially traded pickup lines and like little strategies and stuff to like get dates and all that. Um, and the book became a huge bestseller. And as a result, that little underground community became this huge commercial industry. Um, from like 2006 up until probably 2011 or 12. And, um, and so running, like running my dating website, a lot, most, most of my early readers were guys from that community. Uh And I, I read Neil Strauss's stuff and I like, you know, I, I, I went to a bar and like, you know, asked the girl like who lies more men or women, you know, I tried (laughs) some of that stuff and it was, um, it was terrible. Like none of it worked. Um, and it also just made me feel like really icky. Yeah. Um, just like a, like I was 
I was a fake person and I didn't like that. So I never really used it again and I, and I was never a fan of it. And then I started getting all these guys showing up to my, to my dating blog and they were, they were pickup, pickup artist guys. And they had all these crazy ideas about like, Oh, well you got to transition from C3 to a one and, and give her a neg and escalate to H4. You know, I'm like, I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, you know, it, I was just like, all right, I need to, if these are the guys that are reading my blog, like this is, I should understand this stuff. And so I, I kind of went on a binge and started reading a bunch of this stuff and I was horrified, like absolutely horrified. Um, and so I wanted to write, uh, I guess what you would call like the antidote to all that stuff. Like what, because I I knew I knew it was wrong, and and I basically spent the next year trying to pinpoint exactly why it was wrong and what a guy should do instead, and that that became models attract women through honesty, um, and I'm super proud of that because it's it it actually became the best selling men's dating advice book on Amazon, and it has been more or less since since like 2012 or so. Um, also happy to report that the pickup artist community is like pretty much dead from what I hear. Really? Um, yeah, it's pretty much gone. Um, I think there's like a few or it's back to being like a very obscure underground thing, but it's, um, it, it was a fad, you know, it came and went. And, um, and from what I've seen from that industry, it's like people either found a way to start giving healthy advice, um, or they just became like really sexist trolls and started writing like angry alt-right men's blogs. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what's interesting though is that you and Neil, even though you wrote pretty opposite books, yeah. I've I've thought in my head for the longest time, regardless of the content, like I'm not even talking about the content at all. Yeah. I'm just talking writing style. The, the two most talented writers that I know are Neil Strauss and Mark Manson. And then, you know, in, in third, so that's like a tie. And then yeah. there's, and then there's like Seth Godin, who's just a completely different style. Sure. But you two are like, just, it's uh, profoundly talented, but writing about very different very di with completely different philosophies. I just thought it was interesting. Well, I I appreciate that. That's a big compliment. He is an incredible writer, and um, it's funny because I I disagree with so much of the stuff that he writes, but he's so readable. Like oh, yeah. he's 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 one of those he's one of those authors that it's uh all of a sudden you look down and it's like you've read seventy pages and you're like wait wait <laughs> how long have I been sitting here <laughs> right. I um, which is, you know, that's, that's rare. Not many, it's hard to do that as an author. Yeah. I was going to tell you at the end of it when, uh, but I mean, I'll tell you now, I mean, when two, there, there are two books or three books in my entire life where I've had one sitting where I read a hundred pages of it yeah. and one of them is the game yeah. by Neil Strauss and me as a, you know, a 17 year old, uh, high school, you know, depressed high lonely high schooler reading that. And then the other one was, La like at this time last year of the subtle art. Yeah. So just very, very interesting. And then the other is uh, Don Miguel Ruiz's The Four Agreements, which is, which is a good book as yeah. well. But 
So, so what I'm getting at here is I'm just so curious as a writer myself, you know, if you have a ritual when you sit down to write, like what determines to when it's time to write, you just like, you're, you're, you're chewing some food and you're like, huh, I should go, I should go right after this. <laughs> like, like, what is it? That happens very rarely. <laughs> Usually the opposite happens, which is I'm supposed to be writing and I'm like, hmm, I'm hungry. I should go eat now. <laughs> oh. um, you know, I wish I had a ritual. For me, it's, I, I've just, I will procrastinate writing as long as I will let myself. Um, so I, I've learned that when it comes to writing and creative work, I need to be a little bit of like a drill sergeant with myself. Um, you know, uh, other work that I do, like business work and marketing and meetings with people, you know, it's like I can kind of relax and have YouTube on in the background or whatever. But it's like when it's time to write, it's I schedule a block, you know, depending on what I'm working on and how, how quickly it needs to get done. I, I, I schedule a bunch of blocks, writing blocks throughout the week. Um, and I show up and I've got like software on my computer that blocks all social media, blocks email, blocks everything. Is it, is it leech block? Uh, I use one called focus. Okay. Um, I've used a few and, and I th focus is my favorite for a couple of reasons. One is you, you, it's got a hardcore mode, so you can't like turn oh, it off. Oh, um, genius. And you can, you can schedule it in advance. So I can go in on Sunday night and be like, okay, Monday from eight to 12 and Tuesday from 10 to 10 to four and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then it also, you can give yourself a certain amount of breaks per day. So I give myself, um, 20 minutes break time each day. Um, so you can go there and you're like, mm, I think I'll take a six minute break, um, and check my email or whatever. Um, so I do that. And then, um, yeah, I, I just, I find that I have to do that. I basically have to remove all distraction. I have nothing in my, I mean, I have no furniture. You can, you can see me, the, right. <laughs> the listener, <laughs> the listener cannot, <laughs> there is nothing in my office. Um, mm. it's, it's basically just hundreds of books on the floor. Um, and it's, uh, that, that's what it takes. It's, it's, and I, and I have to be really hard on myself. Like I, you know, don't get up and go get a snack. Don't get up and, you know, don't take a foot, leave my phone in the bedroom, in the other room. Um, cause if I don't do that, it just, it just doesn't get done. And it, and it just makes the writing process like so much less pleasant if I'm not like completely locked in. I, yeah, I a hundred percent agree. The scheduled time blocks for uninterrupted focus are so important. I mean, I read about that in a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. Yeah. That, that, yeah, you really, I mean, you know, it might seem like an innocent check of, you know, Instagram on your phone, but really what's happening is, and I've talked about this on the podcast several times, that there's an attention residue still left focusing on whatever you saw on Instagram totally. that, yeah, that, and there's all this research to back it up and it's, uh, it's not as innocent as you might think. And even the snack too, like when I was writing, you know, I, when I, when I was writing my book at this time last year, I lost 10 pounds, you know, and I'm only, I'm only, I'm, I'm and I still haven't gained that weight back. I'm still, I went from 154 to 144. Like I'm not that heavy and I lost that much, you know? Wow. So 
but but it was really in the name of uninterrupted focus and keeping that flow state so yeah. important yeah yeah it is and it's crazy i mean speaking of that research uh i've read i read recently that even the they've got research that they found that even like having your phone in <sighs> the room like even on your desk it it causes anxiety and stress and like they found that like if people people who go to dinner and put the phone on the table are less like l- listen yeah they don't they don't listen as well to to the other people oh yeah um uh, it's crazy it's um yeah it's a weird time well yeah I'm, dude when i am i mean you know when i the the future i mean my family lives a thousand miles away at this point but you know when i'm having dinner with my family they they know you know jordan's rule is no phones on the table it's just it's like i mean what you're saying by putting the phone on the table and you know, you've probably seen this in one way or another with Simon Sinek's viral interview. Like w- what you're saying by having that phone on the table is y- you're just not that important to me. You're not yeah. that important to me right now. Uh, yeah. So I always, I always, I'm a stickler with it. And I saw too, along the same lines of the research you're talking about that in students' test scores or, or grades, like merely having the phone on the table resulted in a lower grade. Wow. Yeah. So interesting, interesting for sure. So, you know, you started blogging and, you know, one of the first things you did was write about dating. Was it the first? Why, why did you start blogging though? I started, blo- well, so back in those days, <laughs> back when I was your age, uh, that, you know, these days it's all about podcasts and YouTube. Um, and back in those days, blogs, blogs were like the big new thing. Um, so bl- blogs were like, the YouTube in 2008. It's like everybody was going crazy about it. Everybody was like, Oh my God, you have to have a blog. And, um, Google actually, the, the kicker was that it, it was discovered that Google's algorithm was rewarding websites with blogs disproportionately to sites without blogs. So it, it, before 2008, it was all about, you just built like a landing page that, you know, convince people to buy something uh and then hope people link to it um or like went out and paid people to link to it now then when blogs came along it's like you wrote content and the idea was to have the best content then google would reward you send traffic your way and then you you could make money without having to to pay anybody anything um so yeah i as soon as i found that out I, i i put blogs on all my websites and would write up these like you know crappy little 200 300 word posts um, to try to get, get the traffic juice flowing. Um, but it it was with the dating blog because I was so personally invested into it. Um, those two or 300 word posts were actually became like 2000 word posts with some crazy story that I had that last Saturday night with some girl I was seeing. And, um, and that's why it took off. Mm -hmm. So in 2017, I remember hearing this a very long time ago, probably when the interview came out, but in another interview that we were, when you were talking about blogging, you said blogging is in a recession right now. Yeah. And now here we are two years later, the same, the same holds true, right? Has that changed? No, it hasn't changed at all. Mm. Um, Has it gotten worse? I think it's gotten worse. I think it's, it's a combination. Of, I mean, what really killed it, Facebook did a big algorithm change in, oh. 17 uh and that really hurt blogs but i think now it's just people youtube is getting so good 
Netflix, Hulu, like they're all like all the video content sites have gotten so good now. Um, and podcasts are getting so good that it's, and on top of that, all the newspapers are getting so good. Like it used to be as a blogger in like 2012, uh, you know, I knew more than the people at the New York Times knew. I knew how to get shared on Facebook. I knew how to create a clickbait title that would get me like, that would go viral on Twitter. Like New, the New York Times didn't know how to do that. And so all the bloggers had a had a leg up on traditional media. Um, the problem is that traditional media is caught up. So it's, and it's like, if it comes down, if Facebook has to choose between showing me or the New York Times to people, like they're always going to show the New York Times. Um, so it, it's blogging's in a really rough spot right now. There's mm-hmm. not many of us left um, who haven't like pivoted to something else, right? Uh, so okay, now we're going to move on. I mean, as much as I want to talk about the subtle art, I mean, yeah. we 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 got to get moving. And I mean, unless you, if in case you live under a rock and you're one of the few people that don't have this book yet, I mean go and get it. I mean, some of my favorite concepts from it, choose your struggle. You know, we never, you know, it's an illusion to have a life free of problems. I absolutely just love so many concepts and stories in that book. Like general, I was rereading this morning. And I remembered, I was like, oh my gosh, is general Onoda, right? That, yeah. that was lost in the, that was, you know, in the jungle for like 30 years yeah. after the war ended and after World War II. It was just uh, just so funny, um, but with with so many good lessons behind it. But the moment we've been waiting for, okay, we're here. We're here. We're here to talk about everything is fucked. Why yep. the heck is everything fucked? <laughs> well, everything's always fucked. The short answer is everything's always fucked. Everything always has been fucked, and always will be fucked. Um, it's uh, there's no such the same way. There's no such thing as a life without problems. There's no such thing as a world that's not fucked in some way because mm. we're human and we always find a way to mess things up. Um, and one of the, one, I guess one way you could describe the first half of everything is fucked is that I, I just, I explain in detail the psychological mechanisms that basically generate a perception that there are problems in the world. Like we, we, even if you remove all the problems from your life, your brain will start inventing problems for you. Um, and I think this is why we're seeing so much today, you know, like people losing their shit over, uh, you know, there's too much ketchup on their burger and, you know, they, it's, I demanded a refund cause it's the shipping came a day late, you know, people just losing their, right. their minds over like really, really dumb things. Um, and it, and it just, it's making life more comfortable and convenient doesn't make us happier. It makes us find less solvable, more insignificant problems to worry about. Mm-hmm. So what, so the subtitle though is a book about hope. <laughs> why, why is it's almost like the, the title is almost a paradox. Totally. It's, yeah. um, I mean, it is, it is why not almost it is. <laughs> it is, it is. It's, um, you know, it's, it's similar to subtle art of not giving a fuck. Like there's nothing subtle about not giving a fuck. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's everything is fucked. A book about hope. Um, 
so my, my argument in the book is that when, when we're generating these problems in our minds, um, we always need some perception of hope to, to kind of sustain us. If we ever lose our hope, um, we, we give up. We, we, there's no, we don't see any purpose to continuing or, you know, getting out of bed in the morning. So like hope is a very fundamental kind of fuel for our psychological machinery. And, um, I guess one of, one of the points that I make is that if our problems are becoming more frivolous and insignificant, then it becomes more and more difficult to, to, find hope for them, um, to, or to maintain hope in our life. And, you know, when you start thinking about a person without hope, you know, it's like, everybody thinks that depression is like sadness, you know, and, or anxiety is being afraid of something. And and I make the argument that really like what depression is, it's not, it's not sadness. It's, it's, it's an absence of hope. It's a crisis of hope. It's like, you don't, you don't see any better possible future for yourself. And so that removes all motivation. Everything becomes meaningless. Um, similarly, like anxiety is, is also a crisis of hope. It's, it's the feeling that there's uh, nothing you can do to make things better. Um, and so that, that generates this sense of like dread and, and angst in ourselves. And so it's kind of a look at, I mean, if you zoom out a little bit, it's just this, it's a look at why, if, if everything is so good in the world, if we have all this amazing technology and we're living longer and, and we're safer and there are fewer wars and the world is wealthier, um, which all is true, like why are we having so many mental health issues around depression, anxiety, drug overdoses, suicide, like all of those things are rising very quickly yet materially the world is better off than it's ever been and so so the book is just an investigation into why that is yeah i mean i that's something that i've been i've been seeing half of that for a really long time and the other half of it but not really putting it together and i'll explain there's you know, I've been seeing, okay, you know, like Steven Pinker's research that you write about and, you know, like school shootings are way down, homicides are way down, everything, oh, terrorism is way down, everything that's like bad is way down and everything's getting better. The world is getting better, not worse. And at the same time, I've seen research and I've talked about it on the podcast at least three or four times is the, you know, since the inception of say the iPhone and what was it? 2007. I don't know. Yeah. 2007, you know, there's these graphs and, and there's these studies that show the levels of depression going way up, uh, the levels of, um, teens reporting, feeling lonely is going, is on a steady rise ever since then. Um, every, and there's some other metrics as well. Yeah. But when, so yes, when you put those together, it's like, what the heck is going on here? Yeah. What it's, is going it's, on? It's on the, there, there are a few things I think. One is that even though there are, there are fewer bad things in the world, we're way more aware of them and we're immediately aware of them. Um, another argument I make in the, in, in the new book is that I think what technology has done the last few decades is that it's replacing quality of relationships with quantity of relationships. So, 
you have access, you and me, we have access to like way more people. Like, right. you know, just our parents' generation, like you could never communicate with tens of thousands of people like we are in this conversation. Yeah. That's incredible. But the the quality of that relationship is very uh, removed from, say, like, uh, like attending church every week, which people are doing at record low numbers right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not religious, but that's just an example of how like we're giving up our community focus and becoming more globally focused because of the technology. And while that sounds nice on paper, yeah, we, we should all be globally focused and care about the planet. And, you know, we're all one and all this stuff. It's like our brains are not wired to deal with that where we are, we evolved in small communities and tribes and our mental health and happiness greatly depends on those small community, like local communities and tribes. And, um, and so when you kind of like destroy the ability to form those relationships, but give people access to Twitter and Instagram and whatnot, like you, you start seeing this like very intense kind of territorialism, that that goes on today of of you it's impossible you have to you're either with us or against us and, and everybody's just always like yeah. slinging mud at each other um so it, it's it's a fascinating thing to think about and i think it's it's um i think you know a lot of people there's a lot of stuff out there that's kind of targeted social media some has targeted parenting the last few generations um I look at it from more of a macro, like just how is information shared and, and understood um, over the generations and how we're, it's very likely that we have been like psychologically overwhelmed. Um, we're have, we have too much of a good thing. I was just going to say, yes, too much of a good thing you say can psychologically eat us alive. Yep. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's so it's it sounds pretty dismal and bleak, but it is uh it is a book about hope. So <laughs> it is um I I look at it, I think I look at it a little bit differently than most. I mean, it it's in my opinion like like I said like I said when you first brought it up, like I the world has always been fucked. There's always been problems. I actually start the book with a Holocaust story. And one of the reasons I start the book with that story is because I want to like kind of just set the reader straight. You know, I I imagine many of the readers coming to the book have been spending way too much time watching cable news or scrolling through Twitter. And so that they, they probably have this perception that today's problems are unprecedented and massive and the end of the world is coming. Um, But it was only a few generations ago that it was so much worse and the problems were so much bigger and so much more intractable. Um, and I think the only thing that changes throughout history is that the, the nature of our problems evolves and shifts um, and away from physical conflict. And, and the challenge of our age is that is more psychological conflict. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, going back to... Um, 
you know, are getting rid of like, you know, community or, or I forget the way you phrased it, but, you know, if you go on a college campus, I mean, uh, you know, they're trying to put on all these events, mm -hmm. but nobody goes, we're all, you know, they're, everyone's in their room on their phone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and like, I'm look, look, I know because I was a president of, uh, the resident housing association and I'd put on, I'd put on events and, you know, I got, I mean, I got one where there was like 300 something people at a pool. It was a pool party. But yeah. other than that, it's like, it's hard to get people, drag people away from the, the technology and the psychological warfare of Twitter. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I mean, even to bring it back to dating, it's like, you know, I was a pretty big geek when I was in school and, you know, Facebook had just come out and that's back when everybody loved Facebook. So it was, Facebook was like a huge deal when I was in school. And so we would just spend like all day on it. And, uh, but what got me out of the house was like, I wanted to go meet girls. I like dating still happened face to face. And so you had hacked, you had to actually like go to a party somewhere and walk up to somebody and like talk to them. And I, and, um, and like even Tinder these days, like it's just, it's, it, it creates, the technology is creating a paradox of choice. Like there's so many opportunities to connect with so many different kinds of people that nobody wants to commit and sacrifice those other options, whether it's making friends or dating somebody. Um, and it's that sacrifice that actually generates a sense of meaning. Um, you only, and that's, and that's one of the, one of the, the big takeaways in this book towards the end of it is that it's, it's, you can't experience a feeling of meaning and value in your life unless you've sacrificed something. And so when we have all of our technological innovation is geared towards making it so nobody has to sacrifice anything, uh, what you end up with is a bunch of entertained people with existential crises, you know, people who like have, 800 things that they can watch on Netflix, but none of them feel like they're worth the time. Um, and so it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a very like, it's a very strange time. It is a very yeah, strange time. Certainly. So the uncomfortable truth laid on us, what is it? <laughs> uh, the uncomfortable truth is that you and everybody you know is going to die. And uh, cosmically speaking, in the grand scale of the universe, pretty much nothing you or I do is going to matter. <laughs> it's like we are just yeah. like the most insignificant speck um, in the grand scheme of things. And, and you'd write this you'd write this on a, a Starbucks cup of yeah, coffee yeah. if you were a barista, you say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of the joke. I'm actually hoping that, you know, if this book does well, then then some coffee coffee shop somewhere <laughs> yeah. is gonna like create the coffee cups um i think that's my like ultimate goal with this book launch is to just get the uncomfortable truth written <laughs> on an actual coffee cup um but yeah it's it's an uncomfortable truth a because it's true and b i think we we spend most of our lives avoiding it and um again it sounds like such a bleak and dark thing but over the course of the book i make the argument that it it's actually liberating in many ways because it's a it implies that we have to take responsibility for the meaning that we create for ourselves it means that we have to take responsibility for the sacrifices we make it comes back to choose your struggle you know from subtle art um 
B, it means that, you know, if everything we do does, isn't going to matter in the grand scale of the universe, then it means that there's no excuse to not do something. There's no excuse to like not follow what you're passionate about or not speak to somebody honestly or not love somebody and be willing to get hurt for it. Um, so a lot of the things that we are so anxious about, about engaging the world, um, it's actually the uncomfortable truth reminds, reminds us of how insignificant our anxieties are. Um, and it's actually, and it's also, it's the starting place of hope. It's, it's, we have to generate hope in the face of the uncomfortable truth to give our lives a sense of meaning. Certainly. I, I mean, I, I've thought about this before. I mean, I mean, I mean, I do it when I'm feeling overwhelmed or, you know, my, my seemingly large problems that aren't so large, uh, you know, begin to arise and bubble to the surface. You know, I go outside at night and look up at the stars and I re- I'm like, oh, wait, you know, when you, when you do <laughs> look, not, not for like a minute, but like 30 minutes, you, you yeah. really start to think about it and, you know, learning about, uh, learning about, you know, how vast our universe is back in ninth grade earth science was just the most fascinating thing to me. And, uh, you know, when you think about it, it's like, yeah, I really, uh, that, that really doesn't matter. <laughs> like yeah. it's, it doesn't matter yeah. as much as yeah. I thought. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Love yeah, it. So it, it's, it's, it's like, it's like, I think one of the things that I said in subtle art, which is that any problem you're, you're having, even though you think like our, our minds have a way of making us think that our problems are very unique and they're our own. Uh, but the truth is that any problem you are experiencing, millions of other people have, have experienced it, are experiencing it currently and are going to experience it in the future. Uh, and so you're never alone in your pain. Human pain is actually incredibly common, but it's also very much the same. Like we, mm-hmm. we, we, suffer for the same few reasons and um and i think ultimately it's that remembering that and being able to like embrace that that maybe gives us some hope of (laughs) surviving the cell phone armageddon (laughs) the cell phone armageddon (laughs) well i love it mark so i mean i i've heard you talk about this on numerous numerous other shows over the past few years and that, you know, whatever you write next mm-hmm. is going to pale in comparison. 99.9% chance, your words, not mine, that it's yeah. going to pale in comparison to the subtle art. You know, have you gotten over that? Do you still, do you, or do you not give a fuck anymore? Uh, I kind of don't give a fuck. I mean, it, it was an interesting process. I think after subtle art blew up, it, it really messed with my head a little bit. Cause it's not, it doesn't feel good. Uh, you know, I think it starts from a very young age. You know, if, if you think about like coming up through grade school and even through college, it's like everything you do each year is a little bit better than it was the year before. Like, and, and I don't, I don't just mean like, uh, you know, it's like you're further along on the path. I just mean that you're, you're smarter, you're more successful. Uh, you've earned more respect from your teachers and whatnot. Um, and that, that kind of continued into the real world. Like I started my business and it was every year I made a little bit more money. I had a little, I had more readers. I had more traffic. I had, you know, my website was bigger, like all this stuff. Like you kind of get 
I didn't realize how attached I was to that, that growth, I guess that, that measurable growth and, um, subtle art completely screwed that up because it's sold so many damn copies that it's basically just never going to happen again. (laughs) And I know that sounds like that might sound pessimistic to people, but it's like, I don't know. You don't understand. (laughs) I just don't see, I just don't see why this one isn't going to. Um, you know, I would love it to. I, I think it is. I mean, it's. I, I mean, I have it. I've had it for yeah. over a month and a half, and it's. I mean, it's open right here. I got it. I mean, it's. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's, and it's so timely too. I think it's got a good shot, Mark. I mean, I I appreciate that. That that's a huge compliment. Um, but it's also, the success of subtle art is such. It's like a. You know, it's like maybe two books each decade, do this well. Mm. Um, it's, and especially the international success, like it, it is, it's really, really rare, uh, and unexpected, you know, I'm sure this book will do great. I'm sure it'll sell, you know, a couple million copies or whatever. Like, I don't, don't get me wrong. Like it's going to kick ass, but it's, um, subtle art is just on this like insane plane. Um, so that messed with me for a while, but Ultimately, what I came back to when I wrote this book is I realized, I said, I need to let go of, you know, this idea that, you know, things are going to grow and get better commercially, you know, in terms of like the numbers and everything. I need to let go of that uh, and accept that like this is probably, it's very likely that this is the commercially the most successful thing I'm ever going to do. Um that's a little bit of a downer, but what got me through that was, okay, just write a better book. You know, if you write a better book, it doesn't matter if it sells fewer copies, doesn't matter if it gets bad reviews. Like if it's a better book, then I'll be proud of it no matter what. And once I kind of arrived at that, that saved me a little bit. Um, and you know, there, there's a lot of, you can go online and find a lot of talks and a lot of articles and stuff written about people who had massive success and then it just kind of like completely fucked with them. And, uh, I think Liz Gilbert has a famous Ted talk about it. Um, yes. but it happens to, happens to a lot of musicians. It happens to a lot of people. Um, and I think the, the only thing that got me through it was just write a better book and then fight for that book. Um, because there, there were a lot of external forces that wanted me to do subtle art for teens and subtle art for parents and subtle art for Christians and subtle art for atheists, you know? And and like, I'm like, no, like I need to, I need to just get back to what inspired me in the beginning, which is to just write a really, really good book, write the, the book, the best book I think I'm capable of writing. And so I think I accomplished that. And ever since I finished, uh, I don't feel any anxiety about it. Um, I, really don't i think it's going to do really well and and i appreciate you saying that you think it's going to do really well but it's um you know whatever happens happens and i'm i'm very at peace at that with that at this point everything is fucked is out now make sure you get your copy mark i've got a few final questions though what is your biggest fear right now oh god biggest fear um that HarperCollins goes bankrupt <laughs> and they can't pay me my royalty checks anymore. 
<laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, even then, I'd probably be fine. Um, yeah, I think it, so. It, it's, it's uh, I, you know, my biggest fear, it's funny, I'm in a really good spot right now. I think, mm-hmm. you know, the success of Subtle Art brought up a lot of fears, uh, a lot of insecurity, a little bit of like imposter syndrome. Oh. Um, I, I think most of that's behind me now. Like, I feel really good about my life, my career, my my personal life is great. Uh, wow, I really don't know how to answer that right now. That's fine. I mean, I mean, maybe there isn't a perfect answer to it right now, and that's that's imperfectly you, perfect. That's a, that's great. I'll tell you, a year ago, I would have had ten of them. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, I you bet caught, you you caught me at a good time. <laughs> <laughs> So, but but now I imagine though. I mean, because life is not all sunshine and rainbows. I mean, sure. And I, I feel the same way. I mean, like we do invent things that that yeah. are wrong from time. That are, uh, we invent problems from time to time. And I feel the same way. As great as my life is, and as exponentially better uh, than it was in high school just a few short years ago, there's still sometimes you know from time to time there's still down moments, and even 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 more rarer, but a down day. What sure. do you do when you feel down? Um, I, uh, unless, I, unless maybe you're perfect. I don't know. No, I'm definitely not perfect. I will tell you. So back to the fear question. I there is a fear. So I'm I'm afraid. My wife and I were trying to have a kid, and and it's funny because it's when you're young, you're like, oh yeah, as soon as I want a kid, you know, you just you spend your whole life trying not to have a kid. That you're like, right? You just you just assume that as soon as you want one, it'll just kind of happen. Uh, but it's funny. There's so much anxiety around it. Like it's as soon as, cause it's, you, you know, you, you start trying and then a couple months go by and you're like, well shit, nothing happened. And then like another, cu- another couple months go by. And so then you start getting really anxious and it's, it's funny cause a lot of my, I've talked to some friends who have kids and they're like, this is totally normal. It takes a year or two, you know, whatever, don't worry about it. So, but it's that's an anxiety that's in my life right now. But um, to answer your question about, you know, if I'm I'm feeling like crap, but one day or something, well, you know, one thing I've learned to do is is give myself permission to a feel bad and and b just like uh to just kind of take take a day for myself. Um, I think you know I used to be very hard on myself. I used to think like, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way or like, oh shit, well, if I had been doing this better or working on this or, you know, doing that, I would have, this never would have happened. Uh, and and I found that that sort of like self-flagellation just makes things worse. And so if, I, if I'm having like a really crappy day, I'll just give my pers- myself permission. Like, you know what? You know, we're just gonna like take take this one off you know, sit around, play some video games, yeah. May, maybe have have a beer or two and just like let it go, um, start anew tomorrow. So I think it's self-forgiveness, I guess, would be a better Fantastic. way of putting it. Fantastic. Well, what areas of your life are you looking to improve over the next year? Um, you know, I'm trying to, I'm like taking a lot better care of my health this year that's good um that's actually been a big goal of mine i kind of let myself go over a few years um one due to stress 
you know, a lot of stress and then a lot of like kind of existential anxiety around, you know, all the stuff, subtle art, all the anxiety that subtle art caused. Um, and then all the, like the travel and stuff that was involved with promoting that book. Um, I fell into a lot of bad habits. I got out of shape. I gained some weight. I started feeling crappy. Um, so I've never been like a really, really healthy person at any point in my life. Um, and I feel like this is the first time in my life that I'm like emotionally put together <laughs> enough to do it. You know, it's like, I, I'm an, emo- like I'm an emotional eater. Like when I get stressed or depressed, I eat a lot. When I get stressed or depressed, I drink too much. Um, so it's, it's, I feel like I'm in a good spot to actually like nail the health thing. And I'm at that age, I just turned 35. So I'm at that age where it's like, it's time to start getting more serious about it. Uh, yeah, you're going to, I mean, you're going to love it. I mean, when you actually commit to it, I mean, it's just, it's like, you're, you're going to, you're going to start eating, eating right, sleeping right, like all day, every day and drinking a bunch of water. And you'd be like, wow, how was I not doing this before? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so a little bit of that is kicking in already. Um, yeah. I, I just, I'm like, yeah, why, why wasn't I doing this like three years ago? I'm like that those burgers and whiskeys were not worth it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, some of, some of them are, but not all of them. Yeah. 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 yeah that's definitely that's not fair. the amount that I had. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's fair. So you, you had a tweet maybe not even a week ago, a business conference just asked me to select music for them to play over the PA when I'm introed on stage for a keynote this summer, I don't think they realize what they just did. What did they just do, Mark? <laughs> I'm a huge heavy metal fan. Like, and when I say heavy metal, like, I don't mean, like, I mean, I like Metallica, but I mean, like, death metal, extreme metal, um, it, it, you name a kind of unlistenable metal, I'm probably into it, Um and so I just got so excited. I'm like, they have no idea. <laughs> they have absolutely no idea. And it was funny because I, I picked out a bunch of songs and I played them for my wife. And she just was like looking at me like, what is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> you're never yeah. going to be asked back to an event ever again. And then finally we compromised on Slayer. I was like, all right. Slayer is like, it's it's heavy and, and abrasive, but it's you know, it's people aren't going to like leave the auditorium angry afterwards or maybe they <laughs> we'll, we'll see. <laughs> nice. Nice. So Mark, it's, this has been a fantastic conversation. People can, as I mentioned, they can get the book right now. Everything is fucked on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, literally everywhere. Uh, hard to, hard to really miss it, especially if you just Google your name, you're at Mark Manson net on Instagram, right? Yep. And then markmanson.net is your website. Um, and then I am Mark Manson is your Twitter. Um, you have some you have some good tweets. A lot of times people just like retweet. Like I, I, it's really always disappointing when I, when someone I really you know just love reading and all they do is like post links. But like you actually yeah. you actually tweets you actually tweet original thoughts and it's like great. And I yeah. and I always love them. So I'm, tr- I'm trying to get better at that. So thank you. It's, well, you're good uh, at it. So <laughs> social media is, it's a, it's, it's a learned skill and I'm, I'm ambivalent about being good at it. <laughs> no, I, I remember, I remember hearing you years ago saying that, uh, you know, I, you were, you were 
not into social media. Like you, no. you, you were barely doing anything. And I, and I remember, like, I remember going to, you know, see your, you know, Instagram page after an interview and, and, uh, I was like, yeah, he he wasn't kidding. He's, he doesn't have a whole lot going on here, you know. No, no. <laughs> but I, it's I, it's different. It's a little bit different now. Yeah, it's it's a constant work in progress, um, you know. And and I, I've been slowly getting better at. It. My wife's always getting on my case to do Instagram more. She's like, it's the new it's the new hot thing. You got to do more IG stories. I'm like. Oh. <laughs> Uh, yeah <laughs> i'm like who can nobody cares what i had for breakfast like come on <laughs> yeah anyway um there's so so mark before i ask my final question i have to acknowledge you as i mentioned you are one of the most talented writers that i've ever had the pleasure of reading i've told you that several times and i you know i've been told you like two months ago uh in in the email and it's just uh, you know, I, and I've read a hundred pages in a sitting only a couple of times. Yours is one of those books and the subtle art. I'll always remember like where I was when I was reading it. Granted, I mean, I was in Tulum, so it was like, it stuck <laughs> so out. Easy, of, easy so, to remember. <laughs> so it's easy, but like, but like I'll always, but no dude, even, even ch- certain chapters, like, mm-hmm. like I, rem- uh, like when I was reading about Onoda, like I remember yeah. exactly what road I was on when I was reading that. It just stuck out so much, so many parts of it. And as I mentioned to you off the air, I mean, so many parts of my psychology that I did not realize stem from your principles, from your books and blogs, like the feedback loop from hell, which I always, I always talk about it. And I think about it probably, probably every other day, if not, you know, every time, every time a problem arises, and I start feeling the anxiety and I feel anxious about being anxious. So, I mean, I don't know if you write about it this way, but I always think about, I always, you know, my self-talk is like, Jordan, don't shoot yourself in the foot for shooting yourself in the foot. So like, <laughs> yeah. it's just so many parts of my psychology and not just me, but millions of yeah, other people yeah. that you've, that you have done this for. And, and, you know, with great power, it comes great responsibility. And thank God that the principles in this book are, are what they are and they're not like and and people 8 million people aren't reading uh go kill you know although yeah. you did yeah <laughs> although there was a, a joking chapter in the subtle art called kill yourself but it was but it was a, it was a good chapter i don't quite remember exactly but it was it, it was yeah. all in good fun it was kill kill yourself. Well, it's funny because that originally that section was called kill yourself, and then in parentheses it said figuratively speaking. Of course, uh-huh. I remember I, I submitted it to my editor, and my editor just crossed out the. He's like, he's like, fuck that. Just he's like, grow a pair. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, all right. I, I, I oh guess it's just. I guess it's just kill yourself. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's funny. Well, Dude. bottom line, Mark, is you're doing a fantastic service for the world, and it's Thanks, evident. Man evident in reading all of the reviews of your books on whether it be on Amazon, Goodreads, you know, I see so many comments that are just, it changed my life. This changed my life. That changed my life. And I have no doubt that this book is going to shatter a lot of disempowering beliefs for people and really give people a new way of looking at the world that is, that is very real, but very, it's very empowering too. I, I think yeah. it's going to be a, it's going to be a smash hit as I said. So thank you, Mark. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate well, that. Of course. Well, my final question is, you know, we've talked about a lot of lessons today, a lot of things yeah. you've espoused a lot of lessons in your writing. 
if you could design a course, if you could create a course though, a course of your creation or otherwise that you would teach at a university, what would it be? Oof. For anything, like any subject or? Mark, Mark Manson is in the classroom today like, and, and you're just teaching what, whatever you want. This is your course for 18 weeks. It doesn't, you have no regulations. It, this is not a cookie cutter course. I think I think I would teach a course about values and identity with the the big like reveal at the end of the semester being that your identity is made up that it doesn't actually exist. That 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 would be fun. That would be fun to plan. And uh and I'd make I'd make the kids leave their cell phones at the door. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> that would be my condition yeah. uh, in my in my contract. <laughs> love it. Love it. Mark Manson, you are the man. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jordan. Appreciate it. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode of the Growth Mindset University podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this one today, there are a couple of ways that you can give back. The first is, of course, to leave an honest rating and review in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. You can also take a screenshot of this and share it out on your Instagram story and tag me at j underscore Paris underscore and tag our guest as well. And we will absolutely give you some love. And then, of course, if you want to start your own podcast, a podcast like this or any other podcast that you envision, you can go to jordanparis.com slash PU to get free access to Podcast University. All right. I love you all so very much. And until next time, my friends, make every day count, live to learn, and grow to give.